in the name of our loving and gracious God whose plans of love never fail, your fellow recipients of those plans. The best laid plans of mice and men often go astray. It's true, isn't it? And you know who, where, where that uh, phrase came from? Robert Burns was a poet and a farmer who wrote these words in a poem called To a Mouse. And the idea for this poem came after he had plowed a field and they had, he discovered that he had plowed over a mouse's nest and destroyed it. And so he thought what he had done, about what he had done to that mouse. And so he wrote this poem which contained these words. But mouse, you are not alone. Improving foresight may be vain. The best laid plans of mice and men often go askew and leaves us nothing but grief and pain for promised joy. Thus, the phrase was born. I mean, I think, again, think back to times in your lives when you made plans, but then something happened and those plans flew out the window, usually bringing disappointment instead of promised joy. God told the Israelites in our text that he had a plan for them that they could look forward to. A plan that would give them hope. A plan they could have complete confidence in because his plans never fail. And the plan that he had for the Israelites is basically the same plan that he had for us. And so my friends, get excited. And why? Because did God ever have a plan for us? Imagine for a moment that terrorists invaded Columbus, burned down your homes, destroyed this beautiful church building and all the other buildings in town. And then they led all of us off to captivity in their homeland. Wouldn't that be awful? Well, that's basically what happened to the Israelites in 586 B.C., when Babylon came in and invaded the land, destroyed Jerusalem and the beautiful temple that Solomon had built. And the Israelites were then led off to captivity in Babylon. How awful. But to be honest, as bad as that, that was, they deserved something much worse than this. God would have had every right to just march them straight directly to hell because of their wickedness. They persecuted his prophets. They worshiped false gods. They were guilty of immorality, lack of love toward other people, selfishness, and corruption. They didn't deserve his love. And yet, in spite of that, even when they were captives in Babylon, God would not abandon his people. Listen to what he writes. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. God knew that when the Israelites were there in captivity, they would reminisce. They would think back about how God had once parted the Red Sea to allow their nation to cross over to safety. 
How God had given them victory after victory in the promised land. I mean, who could forget the story of the walls of Jericho just falling down? Yet God did not want them to just dwell about the past. He said to them, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Yes, he wanted them to forget about the past and to look ahead because there was hope. In a way, God was saying to them, you thought that what I did in the past was was awesome? You ain't seen nothing yet. The best is yet to come. You see, God had a rescue mission up his sleeve. His plan was to have a number of them uh, return to Jerusalem in 70 years and rebuild the temple. Jerusalem would once again be the center and hub of their worship life. And from this remnant, the deliverer, the promised deliverer would come and set them free from their slavery of sin and death. Now, why would God do that to people who had such a a wicked past? Was it because they were going to become such good people and turn over this new leaf? Was it because they were going to become the model Christians? No. They failed failed miserably again and again, as God pointed out to them. Yet you have not called me Jacob. You have not wearied yourselves for me, Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You You have not bought any fragrant calamus for me, or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. Yes, he reminded them that their history was filled with pages and pages of sinful thoughts, words, and actions. He summarized it by saying, you have burdened me with your sins. Now actually, a better translation of that phrase would be, you have forced me into labor with your sins. In other words, their sins forced God into action. If God wanted them to be in heaven, if God wanted them to have their sins forgiven, he had to do all the work. He had to come up with a plan and he had to carry it out. And boy, what a plan he came up with. God the Son left his throne in heaven, was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and was born in a stable in Bethlehem. Jesus would live among sinful people, put up with the ridicule and the hatred and the persecution of his own people. Then he would humbly submit to his Father's will by allowing himself to be arrested and beaten and whipped, condemned by Pontius Pilate, and nailed to a cross. And then on top of that, as if that weren't bad enough, he would feel the full, full force of his father's anger on that cross for sins that he never committed by by feeling the pain of hell itself which made him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus carried out his father's plan perfectly and his resurrection from the dead proved that. And because of those plans, 
God could say to the people, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. You see, God blotted out their sins not because anything they had done, but for his own sake. In other words, God chose to send his son and forgive them because in his grace, he wanted to. It's as simple as that. And my friends, that plan that God had for the Israelites is the same one he he had for us. And we can breathe a sigh of relief because when we really look at ourselves, are we really much different than the Israelites? They were guilty of idolatry. Do we always fear, love, and trust in God above all things? I don't think so. They were guilty of immorality. How often haven't we been guilty of sinful sexual thoughts, words, and actions? They at times ignored God's word so they could go off and do their own thing. That's true of us. You know, they were ungrateful and complained to God all the time of no matter how good he had been to them, no matter what he had done to them. Sounds like us, doesn't it? I mean, and on, but just like the uh, Israelites, our history of sin would fill volumes and volumes. And we know that the Lord, because of them, the Lord in his justice should separate himself from us and march us straight to hell. That's not his plan for us. In his mercy and grace, instead of saying to us, you're, 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 you continue to sin against me and treat me so horribly, so I'm just going to wipe you off the face of this earth. Instead, he said, I'm going to wipe your sins off the face of this earth and remember them no more. And just think of what that actually means. I mean, we were covered from head to toe, inside and out, with the filthy stain of sin that we could never get rid of on our own. So God comes to us with the only strain remover that will do that. The cleansing blood that Jesus shed on the cross. And that means when we stand before God on Judgment Day, we don't have to worry that God is going to point his finger at us and say, remember when you said this? Remember when you did that? Because he remembers them no more. And because of this, God wants us to look ahead because the best is yet to come. That was his plan. And yet he wasn't really done yet with the God's, his, his plans for the Israelites. He had something else in mind, and he said, Isaiah writes, that they may proclaim my praise. When God delivered them from their captivity in Babylon and continued to remind them of the Messiah that was to come, his faithful people would respond with words and acts of praise. They would rebuild the temple and gather regularly to worship there and hear his word. They would sing praises to him and offer sacrifices of love and thanks. For a while they would become the kind of people that Peter spoke about in his first letter when he said, you are a chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And the same is true for us. God's plan was not just to forgive and save us, 
but also to work in us the desire and the strength to proclaim his praise. And we do that when we make him number one in our lives and gather here regularly to hear his word and receive the sacrament. We praise him when we take the time to attend Bible study or read our Bibles and or have family devotions in our home. We praise him when we encourage one another and use our mouths to build each other up and not tear each other down. We praise God when we show kindness and compassion to those around us. We praise him when we use all that he has uh, given us to enhance the gospel ministry here and throughout the world. We praise God when we tell family, friends, and neighbors about their need for forgiveness and then point to Jesus who won their forgiveness for them. In other words, we praise God when we, when we love him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and when we love our neighbor as ourselves. The best laid plans of mice and men. Oh, my friends, how true that phrase is. Again, think about how often don't we make plans with really good intentions, but then they just fizzle out. Never happens with God's plans. They never, they never failed, and boy, did God ever have a plan for us. And his plan include, includes not dwelling in the past or on what we've done, but rather focusing on our future, a future filled with countless blessings for our lives here on earth, but even more importantly, endless blessings for all eternity in the home that Jesus prepared for us with his life, death, and resurrection. When you think about it, how amazing that really is. But don't forget that his plan also includes praise to his holy name that comes from hearts filled with thanks for his abundant grace. My friends, this is a plan that we can truly be excited about, a plan that God wants us to take to heart, but also a plan that God wants us to share with others. So let's do just that. Amen.